0: Welcome to Communio Sanctorum, the history of the Christian Church. This special episode of Communio Sanctorum is going to post to the Sanctorum.us website on Easter Sunday of 2015. I realize that many subscribers will hear it at a later time, but since each week's episode posts early Sunday morning, and this is Resurrection Sunday, a special podcast seemed appropriate. This week, we'll be taking a look at the place of the celebration of Easter in the early church. There's considerable controversy over the origin of the word Easter as the label that's come to be attached to the Christian commemoration of the resurrection of Christ. It's best to see the word coming from the Germanic languages and the Teutonic goddess of spring, Estra. Her festival marked the vernal equinox, and with the arrival of Christianity, the holiday morphed to be an anniversary of the resurrection of Christ. Today, you'll occasionally hear someone connect the word Easter to the Canaanite goddess Astarte, the Babylonian goddess Ishtar, or some other such ancient deity. While there may be some etymological connection between the Teutonic Estra and the Mesopotamian Ishtar, it's been submerged under the mists of time. But for many years before the label Easter was attached to the day, the church referred to it as Pascha, a Greco Roman word for the Hebrew word for Passover. Let's not forget that Christianity's roots lie in Judaism. The gospel that's the heart of the Christian message is that Jesus fulfills all that the Jewish Passover points to. Just as the blood of the first Passover lambs delivered the Jews from bondage in Egypt, the blood of Christ the Passover Lamb of God, delivers believers from bondage to sin and death. And in the first decades of the church, most Christians were Jews. Their Easter was really a Christian Passover, and they referred to it as such. Then as time passed and more Gentiles became Christians, the distinctly Jewish flavors of the church's worship and calendar began to dim and alter The anti-Nicene church, that is, the church before the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, observed two annual holidays. The first was Passover, which commemorated Christ's suffering, and Pentecost, which celebrated his resurrection and exaltation. Pentecost began with Resurrection Sunday and ended with the festival of Pentecost 50 days later. Even though these were reckoned as two different days, that is, Passover and Easter, by reason of their closeness and date, they were a continuous celebration, combining great sorrow with even greater joy. The Christian Passover grew naturally out of the Jewish Passover, just as the Lord's Day grew out of the Sabbath. It's the oldest and most important annual festival of the Church, and can be traced back to the first century. By the early second century, it was being universally observed, from the beginning, Jewish Christians continued to celebrate Passover, seeing the earlier holiday as prophetic of Christ. Gentile Christians, for whom the Jewish Passover had little significance, celebrated the Lord's resurrection as they did every Sunday. Between Good Friday, which commemorates Jesus' death, and Resurrection morning on Sunday, is the Great Sabbath. On that day, the entire Eastern Church fasted, often tearing awake all night in anticipation that Jesus might return the next morning on Easter. But if he didn't, then a feast was held to commemorate Jesus's resurrection. This feast eventually became the defining part of the entire Paschal season. Over time, a new tradition developed in preparation for Easter. The day was preceded by a season of penitence and fasting, culminating in Passion or Holy Week. The fasting varied in length from 1 day to 40 hours to 6 weeks. By the 6th century, it was fixed at 40 days, and today is known as Lent. The early church fathers chart for us the debate that arose in the 2nd century over when to observe Pascha. That debate grew over time to become one of the most contentious issues the early church wrestled with. Two traditions developed in the Church of the Roman Empire and Mediterranean world. Since we're pretty deep into church history now, I'll bet that you can guess where and how the sides of this debate lined up. If you said East and West, give yourself a pat on the back. Between the 2nd and 4th centuries, East and West argued vociferously over when to celebrate Easter. While there were some simmering doctrinal debates like Arianism, the argument over when to celebrate Easter was just as, if not even more, contentious. And that likely gives us a clue to the root of the debate. Let me use an illustration. Mark and Bill both are big-time Los Angeles Dodger fans. They're on the same work team at XYZ Gadgets and stuff, and both vie to be the assistant to the team's foreman, Fred, who could care less about baseball or any other sport. Now, Mark and Bill agree that it would be fun to get anyone on their work team who wants to to go to a Dodger game. So the two dozen members of the team agree, and Mark and Bill look at the calendar to pick a date. Mark says that Tuesday, June 3rd is good, but Bill's busy on Tuesday nights doing ballroom dancing with his wife. In fact, he knows that Mark knows that he's busy on Tuesdays, so he picks Thursday, June 5th, because Thursdays are Mark's night to watch his kid. While Mark and Bill have kept the competition for position between them pretty light until now, word's gone out that Fred's getting promoted, and his position will be opening up. So the tension between the two has increased dramatically. They've been digging each other and finding little things to argue over, each trying to outdo the other. The debate over which day to go to the Dodger game takes on a life all of its own as each campaigns for supporters in the work team. Bill and Mark stop talking to each other, but they ramp up a lot of talk about each other. And soon the team is split three ways. Bill's supporters, Mark's supporters, and those who refuse to take sides. Then one day, in the parking lot after work, Bill and Mark come to blows. The argument seems to be about whether they should go to a game on June 3rd or 5th. Both guys claim that's what the tussle's about, but they're the only ones who think that's what it's about. Everyone knows it's really a competition to see who's going to take over the team as the new boss. Reading between the lines of the Chronicles of the Early Church, that is the anti-Nicene church brouhaha over when to celebrate Easter. You can't help but see a Bill and Mark, East and West tussle over who's in charge, who's the top dog, who's going to call the shots and control the levers of church polity. As Philip Schaff says in his monumental work on the history of the church, the Paschal controversies of the anti-Nicene age are a complicated chapter in the story and are not yet cleared up by modern scholars. Though they were more of an administrative issue than doctrinal, they threatened to split the church, both sides laying too much stress on externals. Indirectly, the debate touched the question of the relationship between Christianity and Judaism. The Eastern Church stuck to the date set in scripture for the Jewish Passover, the 14th of Nisan. This position is called Quarto deciman, meaning 14th. The Eastern Church commemorated both the death and resurrection of Jesus on Passover, regardless of what day of the week it was. The Western Church located the general time around the 14th of Nisan, but set the nearest Friday as the day that Christ died, with the following Sunday as the day that he rose. So while the Eastern Church locked in the same day every year, the 14th of Nisan, the Western Church made it the same day of the week every year. Thus, a rather shocking spectacle followed when, in the regions where East and West met, well, there were churches that overlapped their observance of first the death and then the resurrection of Christ. Some Christians mourned his passion and death, while others were joyously celebrating his rising. It's not difficult to see why tension rose between different communities of faith. Earnest efforts were made to harmonize the opposing factions about the fundamental facts of the gospel and the sacred season of the church year. The crucial issue was whether the Jewish Passover, whether it was a Friday or not, or the Christian Easter Sunday, should control the time of the festival. The Eastern practice adhered to historical precedent and had the advantage of an immovable Easter without being Judaizing in anything but the observance of a fixed day of the month. The Western custom represented independence from a Jewish calendar. Another way to look at it is that in the Eastern tradition, chief stress was laid on the Lord's death, but in the Western tradition, it was on his resurrection. The solution to the dilemma came by merging the two into one. Easter is still connected to the Jewish Passover as to its general season, but it's fixed to a Sunday. This rule was set at the Council of Nicaea in 325. So here's how the date of Easter is calculated. Easter is always celebrated on the first Sunday after the first full moon succeeding the vernal equinox, and always after the Jewish Passover. If the full moon occurs on a Sunday, Easter day is the Sunday after. By this arrangement, Easter may take place as early as March 22nd or as late as April 25th. Okay, that's the technical stuff. Now I put on my pastor hat And honor the day for what it commemorates. So, a warning to those who are offended by overtly religious content, the rest of this episode is unapologetic gospel proclamation. Were it not for the resurrection, the history of planet Earth would be radically different. When Jesus died on that Roman cross, it looked to everyone that his campaign was over. He'd run his course, and now it was done, finished. Even his closest companions had bailed on him, that is all but John, who also eventually left the scene and returned to hang out with Jesus' dejected disciples. Jesus' body was removed by the execution detail, handed over to a couple of covert supporters who wrapped him in a linen shroud, shoved in some burial ointments and herbs, and placed him in a newly hewn tomb in a nearby garden. These two men were in a hurry because the sun was about to set, signaling the start of the Sabbath when work such as they were doing was strictly forbidden. Watching from a distance was a little group of women who had been wondering what would become of Jesus' body. They watched the way the two men fumbled the burial task. It was obvious they were unaware of the proper routine, which the women knew well, because it was something they'd done many times. They followed as the two men carried the body to the tomb and watched as they set it inside then rolled the big stone across the entrance. And just as they did the sun set, starting the Sabbath. The women vowed they'd return at the first opportunity to do a proper job of the burial. That's why they came so early Sunday morning. And as they made their way, they wondered aloud who'd move the stone for them. Sealing the tomb had been an easy task because a slight decline allowed the stone to roll easily, but pushing it up an incline would be a different matter, too much for the women without help. When they arrived, they realized they'd not need help with the stone. It was already lying on the ground in front of the tomb, as if knocked over by a mighty hand. They looked in to see two radiant figures sitting upright at each end of the bench where Jesus' body had lain. Between them was an empty linen shroud made stiff by the dried burial ointments. One of the angels, for surely that's what they were, said to the women that Jesus had risen from the dead just as he said he would, and they were to go to the disciples to tell them. They did, and as the day wore on, Jesus himself appeared to several people and groups. Those disciples, so shattered and disheartened by Jesus' death, hiding out lest the authorities expand their search and arrest them too, went from cowering in fear to a boldness That's willing to face down both the Jewish High Court and the might of Rome. There is really no accounting for the transformation of the disciples other than the resurrection of Christ. And while they literally saw and felt Him after the resurrection, many millions since then, while not having that privilege, still know the reality and power of the resurrection by virtue of the transformation that's taken place in them by faith in Christ. But please understand, not just faith, not the mental mechanics of believing just any old thing. According to the gospel, faith doesn't save us. Jesus saves us. Faith is just how the salvation he won flows to us. That's how it accrues to our account. Salvation is a gift that God gives The hand that receives it is faith. Contrary to much popular thought, what the Bible means by faith is not a blind leap in the dark. Now, that may describe some people's religious faith, their spiritual posture, but it's not biblical faith. Real faith is a reasonable response to the evidence. You see, Christianity is rooted in history. It's not merely the sage musings of some holy men. It's not just a system of ethics, a be-nice-and-recycle philosophy. The Christian faith stands or falls on historical events. There was a real man named Jesus of Nazareth who lived, died, and rose again. That he rose from the dead means that we have to regard him as different from all other people and assess his words and works with the utmost consideration. I'm doing this podcast, a history podcast, because I'm absolutely convinced, utterly sure that Christianity is rooted in real historical events. I'm a Christian, not in spite of the evidence, as scoffers would contend, but because of the evidence. So let me end with this. Applying the rules for how we know if something really happened in the past, a fair observer has to come to the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. To categorically deny the resurrection from a presupposition that the dead can't rise is to make a claim to omniscience. So the skeptic becomes the very thing that he denies, an all-knowing deity. Now please understand that I don't mean to offend by saying that. I only seek to reason with those who've categorically rejected the gospel because of its supernatural elements— to any skeptics or scoffers who've hung through this far, I want to commend you for doing so. I respect you in your opinion. I really do. I'm thankful that we live in a time and a place where we can openly share different views and do so in a polite way without running to name-calling and polemics. I've been challenged by skeptics at many times and from many angles. I'm thankful for these as they've served to sharpen my thoughts and focus my motives. Too often we air and do what we saw earlier in this podcast. We talk about each other rather than to one another. Ideas tend to look a lot different when we're dealing with them through a person rather than in a book or a magazine or when framed by someone in our own tribe. So, may you have a blessed Resurrection Sunday. Sing like now Pure